Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, of that you were aware. It's a great day to be alive, of that I hope you're aware also. It's another good one. It's a little warm here in Atlanta, Georgia, late July. We're 10 days from the end of the month and maybe another 10 or 11 days from the kids going back to school. This is going to be an interesting one to watch. Who knows what's going to happen this year, folks? Let's put our long-term thinking caps on and just buckle down our brains and our bodies to prepare for uh, whatever happens because we're not in control, are we? Hey, I've got a very interesting conversation for you today with a woman named Denise Hearn. She's a new friend and the author of a book called The Myth of Capitalism, Monopolies and the Death of Competition. And I'll tell you more about her and her introduction. But here's something I'm very uh, proud of. And I think something that I'd like to be a tenant of the show. And that's, I don't agree with everything that Denise writes about in her book, but we had a very friendly conversation. And in today's world, friendly conversations with people who disagree are not the norm. And I would like that to be the case here on Crazy Money. So we'll see how good a job I did. You know, it's an effective tool for friendly conversations with somebody whose arguments that you don't necessarily agree with 100% make a lot of dumb jokes at your own expense. And that's what I do today. But glad to have had the chance to speak with her and look forward to sharing that conversation with you in just a minute. All is well here in Atlanta. The big economic lesson we've learned in the house this week is uh, the economics of reptiles. What happened was as part of this whole lockdown thing, I'm saying yes to things that I probably wouldn't have said yes to otherwise. Or maybe I'm just growing up as a parent and as a human being and just letting go a little bit. But there entered into the conversation a desire to own reptiles. And it's interesting how over a couple of weeks the conversation progressed. At first, Elvis, the boy, said, oh, I want to get a, I want to get a reptile. I want to get a gecko. And then we learned that geckos lived for 15 years. And I was like, Elvis, do you really want to have this pet until you're 25? What's going to happen to it when it's time for you to go to college? And he thought about it. I was like, man, that's kind of a long time. It's kind of a commitment. And I was like, yeah, right. And so he did more research. He said, you know what I want now? I want a chameleon, a chameleon. So we researched chameleons. They don't live as long and they're kind of cool animals, but they require a pretty decent amount of work and elaborate environment in which to live. You got to create this tropical thing in your house. And then we looked at that. That turned out to not be such a wonderful idea. So then we got to bearded dragons. Bearded dragons were all the rays. Oh, by the way, the whole time we're like, show me a budget. How much is it going to cost? How much is the enclosure going to cost? What's the annual cost of feeding? What about veterinarians if they have to go there? And so we're talking about how much of his birthday money could be used versus how much allowance could be used. So we got to bearded dragons. They're apparently the puppy dog of the lizard world. And then from bearded dragons, it went to corn snakes, corn snakes, which I'm not a huge fan of snakes, snakes and heights, hate them both. But the corn snake apparently is a very easy snake to take care of. It's a very docile and friendly snake. There is such a thing, apparently. They eat rats. You're supposed to feed them frozen rats. You thaw them first. Anyway, so we go to the pet store on Saturday, and we find out upon arrival, by the way, they were socially distancing in this pet store up in Buford, Georgia, raining reptiles, R-E-I-G-N-I-N-G, raining reptiles. So we had to wait outside in the scorching heat for a few minutes. Then we went in. We found out, guess what? Corn snakes illegal in Georgia. So didn't get a corn snake. Walked around for a while. We looked at tortoises. Tortoises live for like 50 years. That was a big N.O. 
We looked at other things. And eventually, we come back to the gecko, the beautiful gecko, the crested gecko. And on the counter, the whole time we're like, okay, which animal? We got to get the enclosure. We got to build the thing. And we look around for all this time. You know, it's up to like 350 bucks or whatever for the whole thing. And then on the counter, on the side, this is like pre-established aquarium with a gecko in it. And it's like 115 bucks. And I was like, hey kids, what about this? And it worked. It was perfect. 115 bucks. We got our gecko. We got our aquarium. It's all set up. We brought it home. The dog hasn't eaten it yet. It's been great. When I'm done this introduction, I got to go mist the gecko. All right, let's talk about Denise Hearn. Hey, folks, are you an airline that dominates all the flights at a particular airport like Delta does here in Atlanta? Are you a global beer conglomerate that controls half the beer brands on the planet? Or are you a gloomy corporate type that owns half the funeral parlors in America? If so, then you might be an oligopolist. That sounded like a Jeff Foxworthy routine that I was writing. You know, one with a decidedly Econ 101 vibe. But that's not what this is about. This conversation today is with Denise Hearn, co-author of The Myth of Capitalism, Monopolies, and the Death of Competition, about the limits of competition in our market economy. Well, Paul, what does this have to do with money and happiness? That is the theme of Crazy Money. Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's a gut check for us to examine the world in which we live and to question the narratives that drive our lives. For example, we've talked about, is America really, truly a meritocracy? Are our markets really free? Is my success a product of my hard work or due to the fact that I just have awesome hair? Which of those things? I don't know. And by the way, if America isn't a meritocracy or if our markets aren't really free, that doesn't mean that America is a bad place or that capitalism is all bad. It's a gut check to say, okay, maybe it's not entirely a free market. Maybe there are some illusions of choice that we live with just because you can't fight every battle. Think of that feeling you feel when you go on to buy an airline ticket. If you live in Chicago, you know, United dominates that market up there. It's still United, right? Atlanta, it's Delta. You go to buy a ticket to the, one of the markets they dominate. It's like, you know, 700 bucks. And then you go, hey, I want to go to Indianapolis where Southwest flies or whatever the other market is. And it's like $47 each way. Why is that? The fuel cost the same. I don't know. So we have a conversation about the structure of markets today. And as I said before, I don't agree with everything Denise says, but she's a very intelligent person who puts forth a well-argued argument and the points she makes are well worth considering. Denise's writing has been featured in publications like the Washington Post, Quartz, the Globe and Mail. She's presented to over 50,000 people around the world at venues, including the Oxford Union, Bloomberg, and the Hong Kong Foreign Correspondence Club. She holds an MBA from Oxford Said Business School, where she co-chaired the Social Impact Oxford Business Network. She also has a BA in International Studies from Baylor University in Waco, Texas. Giddy up. She resides in Seattle with her husband and enjoys hiking, singing, and breaking conversational norms at parties. I wish I would have asked her about that, but I didn't. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Denise Hearn. When we look at where we've been in history, we can certainly see there are policies that aggregate power and wealth And there are policies that disperse it. And when we look at FDR and the New Deal, clearly there were intentional policy choices that were made to try to free the landscape for the majority of Americans to succeed and to, you know, have the American dream. We're at a point in our nation's history where that ability to compete on the merits to sort of have the American dream is really hamstrung by a lot of policies that 
are not working in favor of the average American. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Denise Hearn, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you, Paul. I'm so excited to be here. Denise, you co-wrote a book called The Myth of Capitalism. So I have a question for you. Why do you hate America? <laughs> okay, you said you were going to play devil's advocate. I didn't know we were going to start this strong. Oh, I'm just channeling the Colbert <laughs> rapport. I miss it so much. I love it. So we don't hate America. In fact, we wrote this. Well, first of all, I'm Canadian, but I've lived. Oh, so you, you do know, hate America. Um, you do hate America. No, no. <laughs> I've lived half my life in the US and my husband's American. But anyway, so we actually wrote this because we love the ability of markets to organize the world. You know, we titled the book, The Myth of Capitalism, because America tends to associate itself with, you know, as the bastion of free market capitalism. And what we wanted to say was, first of all, you have to be honest about the fact that we actually don't have free markets in the US anymore, because we've had 40 years of industry concentration that have left, you know, many industries from beer to airlines to funeral services to hospitals concentrated in the hands of very few companies. And so regardless of what you think about capitalism, you at least have to start from, you know, a point of truthfulness about the state of the markets. And then we can have a conversation about what needs to happen. So our intention for writing the book was certainly not because we hate America or we hate capitalism. The point was, let's start from a point of reality. So we know where to go from here when we're seeing, you know, record high inequality and low workers wages and all these other associated symptoms of a greater problem. Okay. Let's talk about that because one of the reasons I like doing the podcast is I get to challenge narratives that I've constructed for myself and that many people have constructed. One of those narratives is that in the United States, we have a free market system. Do you agree with that claim? I do not agree with that claim. I think for a couple of reasons. One is during the course of our research, as I mentioned, we realized that there's been intentional policy implementation, particularly since the 1980s under Reagan, you know, deregulation and they relaxed the merger guidelines. And there were a number of things that took place that made it easier and easier for companies to merge with one another to start to dominate and monopolize and control industries. And so we're in a position now where we have two companies control 70% of the beer that Americans drink. You know, we have five banks that control half the nation's banking assets, industry by industry by industry. We've seen half of all farmers go out of business in the last 40 years. So it's in everything from you know, chicken farming to kidney dialysis. It really is everywhere. And so one, you know, you've got this market concentration and we have the illusion of choice because often you have conglomerates that control multiple different types of brands. And so you go to the supermarket and you see, oh, wow, I've got all this choice. Choice. But the reality is, you know, they're often owned by the same company. So there's sort of that particular part of the free markets. I think what we're seeing, you know, recently with the Black Lives Matter protests, where we really have to understand how deeply this myth of meritocracy goes in America, that anyone who sort of shows up here and works hard will be able to succeed. And I think what we're beginning, hopefully, to recognize at a national level is that really is not the case for so many. There are real structural barriers that prevent people from competing on the merits, you know, and I think that as, you know, Americans, North Americans, 
all that we really want to see and our economic systems should perpetuate a system which people can compete on the merits. And so that's really our argument is how do we get to a place where it's not difficult to start a business and compete with you know, a monopolist. Currently, we have some of the lowest rates of startups and business dynamism in US history, although we see ourselves as very entrepreneurial. So we have to, again, start from a place of truthfulness by looking at the data and see where are we currently and what does that mean about some of these, you know, inherent beliefs that we have about our own system. Okay, let's talk about some of the examples that you set out in the book and the comment about Black Lives Matter and the lack of true meritocracy in the United States is a big topic, but not one we're going to tackle today. So let's talk Mm -hmm. about market concentration specifically and go from there. I go into the wine store, the beer store, whatever, and I understand that multiple brands can exist under two companies, but I also see a plethora of local brews, like dozens and dozens of microbreweries that are independent businesses that are not owned by these big companies. Now, someday they might get picked up if they establish more than a regional kind of footprint. Mm -hmm. But doesn't that demonstrate that innovation on a local level isn't crippled by these behemoths? And by the way, those behemoths do have 200 choices for me for the kind of beer that I might want to buy. So my choice isn't being inhibited. Right. So I think there's two things you mentioned there. And one is that Yes. From what I understand, actually, AB InBev is very concerned about sort of the resurgence of craft breweries. And so they've actually been acquiring quite a few. Uh, So even sometimes when you think it's a local brewer, you know, in Seattle, we have one here. I'm not a beer drinker, so forgive me. I'm forgetting all the beer names. (laughs) Some Canadian Um, you are. Come on. I know, I know, it's terrible. But, you know, there's uh, many local or what we perceive as local breweries are being acquired. And then the other thing is, yes, I agree with you that your choice is not impeded necessarily. But this is one of the main problems that over the last 40 years, there's been a bit of an intellectual capture to say that, you know, concentration doesn't matter if one all we do is lower prices for consumers and they still have the kind of choice that they have. I think where it gets more nuanced is, again, although you have the perception of choice, maybe with beer, you know, this doesn't make as much of a difference. But if you think back to that horrible incident a few years ago with Dr. Dow getting dragged off the United flight and, you know, bruised and bloodied, you know, there was this whole campaign, a social media campaign, okay, boycott United, boycott United. But what you then start to realize is actually United controls 70% of the air traffic that goes through Chicago. And so they operate essentially a regional monopoly. And so even if customers want to switch often, they're left with very few options. And I think, so one, I think our choice is actually much less than is perceived. And two, it shouldn't just be about, you know, consumer pricing or choice because, this has far reaching consequences for us as employees, for us as citizens. And I think we tend to, you know, overemphasize our consumer identity versus our citizen identity and our supplier or worker identity. Okay. I'll argue with you again. I live in Atlanta, which is a hub dominated by Delta. And if I want to get to say Mm -hmm. Seattle, I have choices. I can either fly nonstop on Delta, or I can wake up at two o'clock in the morning and connect three times on American and I can get there for the same price. Come on, argue with me, Denise. (laughs) Well, I mean, this is the problem. So, okay. 
There's a reason why Warren Buffett used to say that he would never touch investing in airlines with a 10 foot pole. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, you know, a number of years ago, he became primary and secondary shareholder in all four of the major US airlines. And it's because this is his replicable investment pattern. He waits until an industry is consolidated to the point where those companies can become price makers. So sure, you have choice, but you don't have a choice in the fact that airlines continue to overcharge you. They have massively in the recent years increased all of the sort of additional fees that you're paying for baggage. You know, I made a joke when we were writing the book to say, you know, oh, it's not going to be long before they start charging you to use the bathroom. Then I realized there was a European airline that had actually proposed that, (laughs) Uh, you know, and so there's been all um, these excess fees that they've been charging. The seats are getting smaller. There is evidence actually of collusion between the airlines, they listen to each other's annual calls and they use something called capacity discipline, which is basically when they know that a route is very popular, they will restrict the amount of seats available for a flight or they will actually use smaller airplanes for that route so that they can gouge consumers on pricing or maybe, you know, when there's holidays coming around. And so, yes, again, you have choice to a degree, but you don't have choice when it comes to the overcharging that's happening and, you know, the ability to actually, as you said, you actually don't have another choice, right? Because there isn't a viable alternative for you to take your business to if you wanted to get directly from Atlanta to Seattle. How many airlines should there be? How many choices should I have? And what advantages do I have if there are more choices? This is very specific industry by industry. And running an airline business is not easy. And as we're seeing, you know, now they've been incredibly hit by the recent coronavirus and it's put them on very shaky footing. So, you know, I have sympathy. It's not that we think that any of this is easy per se. I think what we're trying to say is that when you get to a point where you look at the macroeconomic landscape and you see that the amount of concentration that's happening across industries is really having a pernicious effect on American lives because one, it exacerbates inequality because every day you go about your life, you go to the supermarket and you buy your groceries and then you book your airline ticket. You're essentially you know, using a little bit of your paycheck and transferring it to monopolists and oligopolists. Where this actually gets really interesting as well is when you think about you know, more rural communities where there used to be the local hardware store, the local baker, you know, and those local dollars would circulate locally and give those towns the ability to remain more resilient. Now you drive through any small town in America, there's a Walmart and there's a subway and there's a Bank of America on the main strip and almost everything else is sort of decimated. So what's happened is there's been this strip mining essentially of many of the rural communities where those dollars now go to some headquarters in New York or San Francisco. And so it's not that any one industry or any one company is a bad actor. It's simply when you see this at a grand scale, then it starts to marry up with some of the other macroeconomic data and macroeconomic phenomena that we're seeing that is really causing you know, an economic problem in the U.S., so you mentioned Walmart, and I read a couple of years ago that a former CEO of Walmart, Bill Simon, called for Congress to break up Amazon. And the irony of <laughs> a Walmart CEO talking about of course. too much power in the hands of one corporate actor, I found it to be hilarious. It is hilarious. But it doesn't it prove the dynamism of the marketplace and that innovation will win out and that no one is too big. I mean, you know, you talk about, for example, the search market, the internet search market, where Google is the winner 
And Microsoft mm-hmm. is, you know, the punk kid on the block. Mm-hmm. Microsoft can't get a fair shake, damn it. Should we, should we really be going <laughs> to bat for Microsoft? This is the great irony, actually, is that, you know, Microsoft faced antitrust scrutiny back in the 90s. They never were broken up, but people think that played a really important role in terms of keeping, there's a phrase that Tim Wu, who's an author, uses like a policeman at the elbow, where they weren't able to sort of actually monopolize as much as they would like. And that actually (laughs) cleared the way for other companies like Google to start up. And so I think what's difficult is we don't often have the counterfactuals of People will say, well, look at Google, look at Amazon. They have created all this innovation for consumers. And no one's arguing that. Of course they have in many ways. But the problem is, is that we don't have the counterfactuals to say, well, what innovations actually haven't reached consumers because they've been captured and killed by these tech giants who, by the way, during coronavirus now are doing huge amounts of acquisitions because, you know, companies are distressed and they can buy them on the cheap. We have anecdotal evidence from friends of ours, but we also see the data where often one of the competitive strategies that these companies use once they get to that position where they have a lot of cash on balance sheet is to acquire competitors, potentially take a technology that could be interesting for consumers and acquire it. But then, you know, they don't bother commercializing it because it's not core to their business model. You know, we saw that with AT&T, which used to have telecommunications monopoly back in, uh, you know, the mid-century. And once they were actually broken up, then all these innovations proliferated for consumers, one of which was the answering machine, which they had been sitting on for years and years. But, you know, just like it wasn't you know, interesting enough for them to commercialize. So I think it's hard for us because we don't actually have visibility into the types of innovations that may have already been brought to market were it not for certain companies sort of monopolizing a particular industry. Damn, that answering machine. We need another innovation like the answering machine. <laughs> Who's got the 2021 equivalent of the VCR, Denise? That's what we need out of the gates. You know, I'm sure there's many. Hey, folks, I want to say something I should have said in my introduction, but I forgot to say it, even though it was written down in front of my face. I want to thank John Yee, who's my friend and former Facebook colleague, for introducing me to Denise. If you have great guest recommendations for Crazy Money, please shoot me an email at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. That's right, at crazymoneypodcast.com. That is how you get in touch with me, and I sure would like to hear from you. By the way, just because you suggest it doesn't mean it's going to be a great fit, but I would love to hear your suggestions. Nevertheless, I've gotten some of my best guests from my listeners. Would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Back to Denise. Okay, let's talk about the nature of a market and how relevant monopoly is to that market. Okay, let's contrast pharmaceuticals to, say, social media. If I have diabetes... I need a diabetes drug, but does the government really need to worry if my access to TikTok is impeded? Right. <laughs> well, I do agree with you in one sense. I think that the tech giants, you know, have faced a lot of scrutiny over the last few years and people have been calling for their breakup. I think that considerations of privacy and access are incredibly important. I actually just don't think that they're as economically damaging potentially as some of the other industries like pharmaceuticals and farming and agriculture. And people that work in competition think that all of this is important. We can't sort of overemphasize one industry. I think that the tech giants are easy in a way to sort of gain widespread appeal because people use them every day, you know, so there's a familiarity with the platforms and people are starting to recognize some of the perverse 
effects of these platforms. But I share your feeling that actually pharmaceuticals, for one, um, the hospital industry, and particularly, again, agriculture and farming are areas where they can be extremely economically devastating for American consumers when prices are gouged without any sort of oversight. And I mentioned I'm a Canadian and I'm forgetting the exact stats, but you know, something like a bottle of insulin in Canada is like less than a hundred dollars, you know, and here it's in the thousands and there's just no excuse for that. And the only reason that that price discrepancy exists is because companies have been allowed to become, you know, price makers with very little oversight. Okay. Our pharmaceuticals are expensive, but in our defense, I also can't shop for insurance outside of my state. <laughs> that was a joke. Exactly. I well, also, and I also pay through the nose for insurance. Sorry, I'm so used to you. <laughs> Oh, geez. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, this is something we cover in the book that actually many of the companies, again, when you look nationally, you might say, oh, there's four or five, you know, insurance providers, so it must be a competitive market. But what they do is they carve up the, the US regionally, and then they tend to operate local monopolies. And that's the same with cable, you know, I think it's 75% of Americans only have one option when it comes to their high-speed internet choice, right? So yeah, this is certainly something we see across many industries. Some things would be natural monopolies, right? Where you have a a very significant minimum investment in infrastructure like telephone wires. What's the fiber that runs in the ground that my cable, that that we are actually having a fiber optic cable that we are actually having this conversation over right now. Like it's one thing if you have to have a municipality give permission to a utility to come in and dig in the streets, right? And it's another thing if I can buy insurance from anybody in the world who's willing to take on that risk. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there are some industries where the capital costs are, you know, very prohibitive. And so we used to say that airline manufacturing was a natural monopoly, like Boeing, right? And then, of course, there's been all the issues there because, again, they regulators really sort of were giving them a free pass and there wasn't much oversight. And so I think there is no such thing as sort of an ideal market. And this is where I think this gets into a little bit of some of my new work, but these are incredibly complicated ideas, even the economy, but the economy is really this emergent phenomenon with all these interconnected moving parts that are constantly shifting and evolving. And we try to measure an emergent phenomenon, which is like non-mathematically calculable and non-linear. And we try to measure it in a very prescriptive and linear way, and it doesn't work. And so, you know, no one, again, is saying this is easy, but I think when we look at where we've been in history, we can certainly see, you know, there are policies that aggregate power and wealth, and there are policies that disperse it. And when we look at FDR and the New Deal, clearly there were intentional policy choices that were made to try to free the landscape for the majority of Americans to succeed and to, you know, have the American dream. And all we're saying is that we're at a point in our nation's history where that ability, again, to compete on the merits, to sort of have the American dream is really hamstrung by a lot of policies that are not working in favor of the average American. Can you give me some examples of that and how industry concentration is contributing to pain for the average person? You know, I just always go back to the Trump tax cuts a couple of years ago, which were, of course were touted as, oh, this is going to be fantastic for workers. I mean, what did the company spend their all their windfall of cash on? They've spent it on record high stock buybacks to pump their stock price and very little, you know, R&D or CapEx or innovation spending. And these things 
are material. I mean, they're not immaterial. They really make a difference in terms of the fabric of how the markets operate. You know, when we're talking about how this affects the average American, you know, something we haven't spent a lot of time on yet talking about is this idea of monopsony, which is, you know, a monopoly is when you have one seller, but a monopsony is when you have one buyer. And when you get this kind of concentration in the marketplace, it not only does it mean that, you know, they can charge consumers higher prices, but it also means that they can hire workers at a lower rate, right? Because they are essentially price makers for labor as well. So this has been one of the economic phenomena that was confounding economists, which was that we had very low unemployment which usually means that companies have to compete harder you know, for labor. So they have to you know, boost salaries and benefits. But we saw this big divergence where actually there was high unemployment, but wages were stagnating. Nobody could understand why. Well, our you know, explanation, and of course, there's many, we're not into monocausal explanations. But one of the main reasons here is because when you get this level of concentration, it means that firms have the ability to lower prices for workers. And that's what we've seen across the board as well. So it's not just that I have less choice of what to buy. I have less choice in the ways I make my living. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And how hard is it for you as an individual to bargain against a monopolist for a higher wage, right? And we're seeing all these things like show up, like an increase in mandatory arbitration clauses in employment. So if you actually have a grievance with your company, you can't actually take them to court. You sign that right away when you come on as an employee with them. All kinds of things like this. Of course, there's been like a major decline in unionization and not that unions are perfect, but the bargaining power that workers have have really eroded over the last you know number of decades. And so then it becomes increasingly difficult when your bargaining power has declined and the concentration of companies has increased. So you have this widening vector of power between those two forces of capital and labor, and it makes it much more difficult for the labor side to assert themselves and to actually get the sort of whatever it is, compensation or things that they are you know, wanting to agitate for. There are other things that have changed at the same time, right? So workers are now competing in a global marketplace and technology has automated a lot of these jobs, right? That 40 years ago Mm -hmm. were done by a human being. They're now being done by a machine or a robot. So is it the case that this is really the effect of market concentration or just the changing world that we now live in and that wages are going to go down because there's more people, there's 8 billion people competing for that job as opposed to the 180 million people that lived in the United States in 1968? Certainly. I mean, I think that, of course, globalization and the rise of technology are concurrent phenomena with this that you can't separate. But it also makes, I think, (laughs) what we realized is that there's many industries where these dynamics are taking place that are not globally tradable goods, i.e. funeral services. Okay, so there's zero reason <laughs> why why funeral homes have been concentrating at record pace and then the cost of a funeral has gone up 10x in the last 20 years, right? Mm. I mean, you are not going to globally shop around you know, when one of your loved one passes away, right? You're going to go to the nearest one in your neighborhood. And we see this in many industries. And I think there are certain industries where that will be more true and there are certain industries where that would be less true. But, you know, the interesting thing too, is that now we're seeing policymakers are recognizing that these transnational corporations spend a lot of time essentially outsourcing a lot of jobs and manufacturing capacity outside of the U.S. and then realize through coronavirus that that made us incredibly fragile and non-resilient. And so now, you know, although it's again, highly complex, people are saying, well, how could we bring some manufacturing capacity back? Because it will actually make us more resilient as a nation, you know, whereas previously it was sort of like, 
let's just outsource this to the lowest bidder. And we're starting to finally realize the sort of cost of these, quote, externalities. If you think about it in natural systems, if you have a system that is a monocrop, as an example, it makes it very susceptible to some sort of disease or pest or something that's fragile. And so we're seeing the same exact phenomenon happen with our economy. And so there is movement to try to you know, diversify, essentially, and bring back the ability to manufacture and to produce goods on American soil. And I think that that's a good outcome of something like coronavirus. God forbid. Showing us our, yeah. <laughs> God, God forbid phylloxera should come back and keep me from my Kendall Jackson Vintner's Merlot every Tuesday night. More <laughs> more wine humor. Phylloxera was a disease that attacked wine vines. Okay. You even mentioned it in the book. That must have been what your, oh, one of the chapters geez. your co-author yeah. wrote. Yeah, it must but have been. I think it would be hilarious to have to put off grandma's funeral because you're still waiting for, you know, the RFP to be returned from Malaysia for the, you know, right. just in time <laughs> funeral services from across the globe. All right. So the obvious question here, Denise, is let's assume you're right about all this. So what's the solution? More regulation? Let's get some regulation in here and regulate ourselves out of this mess. I can't tell how you feel about regulation. From I don't question. want you to know how I feel. That's the whole point. <laughs> Uh, that was also a joke. Um, okay. So, <laughs> you know, I think that we provide, I mean, if people are interested in reading the book, our whole last chapter is proposed solutions. Yes, Many of them are, of course, increased regulation in certain areas. You'll be surprised to know some of it is decreased regulation in other areas, i.e. occupational licensing. So regulation is not some sort of silver bullet, of course. And actually what's interesting too is that sometimes the large incumbents like regulation, even though of course they'll go kicking and screaming and say, please don't hamstring us. But actually they realize that sometimes when, you know, after the financial crisis, as an example, when Dodd-Frank came in, it was so onerous. I mean, it was like thousands of pages long that only the largest banks could afford to comply and so it, what it actually did was make it very, very difficult for some of the you know, small to medium-sized businesses to compete. So all it did was strengthen the incumbency of the largest players. Counterintuitively, regulation can also concentrate markets. So I think that you have to be very targeted and very specific and also very sort of principles-based in terms of what is the outcome we're trying to achieve with this particular regulation. So of course, we do think that more antitrust would be useful, you know, more antitrust enforcement. I'm sorry to interrupt again. That's the problem with these Zoom things. It's like not, a, no, okay. not in person. But, yeah, but yeah. when you say antitrust, I feel like I see a cartoon of Teddy Roosevelt coming out. Like antitrust feels like a concept from a different era. What does that look like in today's right. world? That's exactly the problem is I think that, again, we've sort of relegated it to some sort of relic of history. But when we realized that it was such an important element of Roosevelt's New Deal and that when you look at the charts, you can see the, um, the you know, antitrust cases that were brought and you contrast that against inequality and the amount of money that was controlled by the 1%. And they're the direct inverse of each other. It's really interesting. So I think that it's not some relic of history. What it looks like, unfortunately, where we get a little pessimistic is that in the US, because of the revolving door between, you know, often Wall Street and the regulatory bodies, you see that even the regulatory enforcement agencies have been captured in many ways by these corporate interests and they bring these cases and then they find them, you know, pittens and it's like a cost of doing business for companies and it's more of a slap on the wrist. So, you know, there needs to be real 
enforcement that actually, I mean, Europe is setting a good example in that regard. And actually, you know, I think that that even antitrust enforcement is kind of a, like a remedial action. What we would prefer to see is stronger merger review on the front end, you know, and actually block some of these mergers from going through in the first place. That would be helpful. I think also, you know, our book did a good job, I think, of diagnosing a problem. We did provide some solutions, but some of my more recent work is really saying, what are the types of markets we really do want to build and what do they look like? And how do you disperse power from the beginning instead of needing to you know, constantly go through these cycles of concentration and then disperse it. And usually, you know, if you look historically, there's usually bloodshed and revolution involved in the disbursement of that concentrated wealth. It's sort of like, how could we do that from the get-go and actually ensure a marketplace where, you know, many more people are able to participate in a meaningful way? It's just every day I look at the headlines in the Wall Street Journal and it's hilarious and sad, you know, coronavirus cases up, record high unemployment, this company files for bankruptcy, US stock market, you know, continuing to climb. <laughs> and it's just completely divergent, right? And uh, 50% of Americans don't <laughs> hey. even own any stock, you know, so they're not meaningfully participating. We're so We're winning. We're winning. Come on. We're winning. You talk about new economic models. Give me an example of one that is built the right way and that we could replicate. There's some interesting conversations now, of course, around, you know, now all the Jamie Diamonds of the world and the billionaires have even admitted this, our system isn't working, you know, although they've benefited hugely from these systems. And there's this movement from, you know, shareholder first capitalism to stakeholder capitalism. You know, I think there is some interesting stuff in there. I think we have to be a bit skeptical when all the power brokers are touting this kind of language without any meaningful action to back it up. But one of my favorite groups is called Purpose Economy. And what they do is they help companies transition to multi-stakeholder ownership models or what they call steward ownership. So models that actually give employees a share in the piece of the company's success that actually give sometimes suppliers a share of that success. There are really interesting models where there's a new one called the Perpetual Purpose Trust, where you essentially put the company in this trust and the trust establishes some sort of perpetual purpose for which the company is going to operate. And that can be outside of, you know, the traditional sort of understanding of fiduciary duty of maximizing shareholder return. What's interesting is that legally, I just learned this recently, is that we think that the primary purpose of the corporation is to maximize shareholder return. But when you actually look at the legal statutes, a company is a person. And so no one can own a person. So shareholders actually have no legal ownership of a company. So it's interesting that for some reason, it's really just kind of a concocted social myth that has perpetuated that companies exist to maximize shareholder value. So I think there is some, you know, thankfully, some conversations that are starting to illuminate these types of problems in our thinking. And there are some movements towards thinking about how you can disperse ownership you know, of companies in a more equitable way for all of the different stakeholders that really do you know, make a company successful. I was going to wear my Milton Friedman t-shirt for this interview, but I decided <laughs> it's in the wash. You seem like the type. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being polite. I think I'm not as conservative as you think I am. I want to have a good conversation and I probably no, no, agree with a great. lot more this than you great. think. So you got your master's of business administration at Oxford. Yes. And you spoke at graduation, if I have my data correct. Is that I true? did. You spoke at graduation. What was the theme of your address? <laughs> That's funny. Well, it started with the Mary Oliver quote, what will you do with your one wild and precious life? 
and went from there. You know, I think in my life more broadly and where this connects in with sort of my thoughts around money is, you know, I think that all of human life and human spirituality and human activity is really meant to bring us into unity with one another again, and to sort of do away with this idea of separation between ourselves and each other, between ourselves and nature and between, you know, us and ourselves indeed as well. So this is actually a question that I've been thinking about is in terms of, you know, how I use my own personal resources and money is how can I use money and resources in my life to put me in right relationship with myself, others and the planet, which is a huge question. And I, (laughs) you know, I'm still learning how to answer that. But I think that this is where it all comes back to is why do markets exist in the first place? And what is their purpose? And I think we need to be asking much deeper questions than we are about, you know, all of these systems that we participate in, in order to get to some of the real kind of core meat of uh, the philosophy of money and the philosophy of markets. But why did you choose to go to business school? Oh, well, you know, that goes back to having a businessman for a father, you know, and thinking that that would be something that he would approve of. And I mean, I was interested in doing nonprofit management. Thankfully, I had some very good mentors who actually said, you know, don't limit yourself and go get an MBA. It was great because I had a boss actually one uh, when I was in Canada and she took me into her office one weekend and she said, I'm going on holidays. And when I get back, I want you to have researched Harvard, Stanford, you know, Princeton MBAs. And I said, excuse me, you know, and she said, no, 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 you're going to go off to business school. You're going to go, you know, get your master's somewhere and you've done all that you can do here. And we've loved having you, but it's time for you to get out, to do more elsewhere. (laughs) You know, what a great mentor to have. So yeah, there were a couple of people that were hugely influential in that decision. Understanding that this is a journey, how do you define being in right relationship with yourself and the planet, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, I think that that is kind of the ultimate life journey of trying to, trying to understand and embody that. You know, I personally have been drawn in recent years to some Quaker ideology and some different groups here in Seattle that are have like very much a kind of social justice focus in terms of how they live out their spiritual values. And, you know, I think that ultimately there is this broader connection to source, whatever, you know, language you use for that, that can help us understand what it means to be in right relationship. And I think, you know, I'm also reading, currently reading this, uh, How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. And it's interesting because he talks about how a racist policy is anything that amplifies the inequity between particular racial groups. And an anti-racist policy is anything that actually contributes to grounding us in an equal reality for different racial groups. And so I think in that sense, it is quite I mean, it's a huge question. I think it's, yeah, so I don't know. <laughs> I'll push back on you on that one, right? Since you just opened the door. But like, if we merge yeah. some of the points of your book with the points of that book, that would just say that if I use Google instead of Bing, although it's probably a bad, if I use Google instead of DuckDuckGo, for example, much smaller and more independent, that is exacerbating inequalities that exist in the world. If you put those two together, that says that I'm racist if I use Google instead of DuckDuckGo, or am I overthinking it? Well, I mean, in his book, and I've just started it, so I don't want to sort of... And I haven't read it, so I'm not... This is cocktail party Uh, chat. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think what's interesting is he says that, you know, we tend to use that language of sort of like racist as this label that 
you know, stuck to you and unchanging, but actually he begins the book as a black man talking about when he was in high school, giving a speech that was this sort of ode to Dr. King. And he looks back on it and says, everything I was espousing in my speech was racist, which is super interesting because he was blaming the black community for their own faults, you know, or what he perceived were their faults. And so he says that, you know, in any given moment, we can be both advancing more equitable policies in our lives and actively working against them. So there's these interchangeable labels where I might be doing something that is racist one minute and then doing something anti-racist on the next minute. And so it's not that it's this sort of overarching label, you are a racist full stop, you know, forever and ever unchanging. It's just that, yeah, we all have to acknowledge our complicity in these systems on a very daily basis. And it is complex. You know, I think Personally, I don't have an Amazon <laughs> Prime account. You know, I try to avoid, I mean, but of course, every single day I participate in systems that are extractive, that cause additional inequality. And that's just the tension that we have to live with. But I think if we don't acknowledge that, then we're unable to address these realities in, in a truthful way. If I met you at a party and I asked you, what kind of work do you do? How would you answer the question? After I schlepped my book around, uh, <laughs> I started my own company and I now advise asset managers or different organizations that are wanting to think differently about how to use their capital and resources to advance a more flourishing world for humans and the environment. So that I support about 10 different projects that are happening from, you know, convening newly wealthy tech folks in the Bay Area that want to think about philanthropy and impact investing to working with an organization called CEO that funds female entrepreneurs with 0% interest loans. You know, I also work with asset managers that want to think about their impact investing. So it kind of runs the gamut, but it's all within this vein of let's think a little bit differently about how we can use capital to bring good things into the world. Where do you put your personal philanthropic dollars? Yeah, that's a good question. Thank so you. We... I wrote a bunch of them down. <laughs> So my husband and I support a number of different organizations, you know, that are interesting to us. And I think what we're trying to do as a couple, you know, we've only been married coming up on three years. So we're trying to create a little bit more of a kind of holistic approach of how we use all of our money in service of our values. And so some of that is like, well, what do we do with our investment dollars, right? And where do we put that? My husband's actually starting a nonprofit himself after being kind of on the other side of the table, running a, a big family office. So that's interesting. But so I think, you know, the idea of sort of giving and giving back, I think is, we try to approach it in a more holistic way, but certainly philanthropic giving is part of that. You don't have one answer. And it brings up kind of a interesting thing that I learned when I started thinking about giving away money is that it's harder to do than you think it is before you mm -hmm. step into it. What have you learned about yeah. doing it as efficiently and consistently with one vision as possible? Yeah, it is hugely complex. There's a whole industry built around how to do effective philanthropy, right? And I think there's a couple of things. One is, which is also being borne out as my husband builds a nonprofit and has to go to funders to get funding that so much of our philanthropic giving sometimes is still motivated out of the desire to be in control and so even this idea that, you know, we can be effective with our philanthropy and I can measure it and I can, you know, have this very concrete, clear idea of where my money's going and how it's impacting the world is really a desire to maintain control, maintain power. 
And, you know, funders, I'm not saying that it's not important, of course, you know, data is important, understand, you know, understanding that you're giving to a good organization with good leadership is important. But I just think that there are many, many instances where we need to employ more of a trust based approach to how we give. And particularly for large foundations, it's so onerous on nonprofits where they have to constantly be, they have, you know, zillions of different grant applications that are never the same. They have to report back on all kinds of different things that are never the same. It really impedes their ability to do the work well. So any nonprofit you talk to will say, you need to give to general operating, like unrestricted funding. Don't tell me what I need to do with the funding. Just give it to me and we will employ it to the best and highest use that we know how. You know, and I think there's also for us, we try to think about which organizations maybe are less obvious, but where your dollar will go a lot further. So, you know, instead of giving to the United Way or sort of the Red Cross or these highly resourced organizations, am I in relationship with others that are maybe just, you know, a little bit getting started or giving them a thousand bucks means a whole lot more than if it goes to this other organization. So we try to try to be in relationship with those types of groups as well. Interesting. Yeah. I've never thought about trying to maintain control with my philanthropy dollars, but I do think sometimes that is a pitfall. At the same time, you want to make sure that if you're going to give the money, you want the hungry person to be fed. You want the uneducated person to be educated. And I don't want to pay for the executives that run those philanthropies to be flying in first class necessarily. Oh yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, there's a huge spectrum here in terms of how organizations use the funding. So of course, like looking at their 990s is always a good idea. You can see how much the executive team is compensated and whether you think that's fair or not, you know, based on their industry. And yeah, I think that that level of sort of active engagement is great. I think it becomes more complex when you're asking, I mean, just to give you an example, someone recently donated $50 to my husband's nonprofit. And they said, can you report back to me and tell me like, you know, how the money did what you used it on? And if you flew (laughs) first class. Right. You know, which is, I mean, thanks for the $50, but really, do you really think that that's like a meaningful, that paid for one tenth of one loan to a nurse that wants to get her education in the US, you know what I mean? So I think there, it's really hard to actually understand until you're on the other side and you see how much of this money story of control and power is maintained in the philanthropic sector as well. Denise, thank you so much for joining today. I really found your book to be thought-provoking and enjoyed our conversation. Where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Well, thank you so much for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. I am at denisehearn.com, H-E-A-R-N. I'm also on Twitter, denisehearn underscore. And I think those are the best places to say hello if you'd like to be in touch. Awesome. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Denise, for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed you being down for the chat, down for the debate and having fun along the way. I'm going to do my best to continue to offer points of view from a variety of points of view. Why not? You know what I'm saying? To try to just engage in respectful conversation because there's not enough of that in the world these days. And who knows, maybe I'll learn something along the way and you will too. Won't that be fun? Why not? Here are some takeaways for me today. I do think that she's got a very good point. If you notice the way that your business is valued by airlines and people where monopolies do kind of exist. Like if you look on Twitter to see where people really scream and moan the most about 
bad customer experiences. It really does seem to be from places that are monopolies or highly concentrated oligopolies like, oh, your cell phone provider or your cable provider or the airlines. And my theory is that because they exert so much control, the customer feels helpless. The customer that is you and me feels helpless to get the attention that they believe they merit in that situation. And that those squawks on social media, although they're completely pointless and completely non-productive, that that is an expression of that helplessness. So I do think there's something to what she's saying about like monopolies. They just don't have to take as good a care of you as they would if there was more competition. Number two, here's a little thing that I do. And I mean, maybe you think about it, maybe you don't, but like if I'm going to pay for a service at an independently owned business, I do my best to pay with like my Visa card instead of my Amex card because the merchant has to pay a much higher fee for Amex than they do for Visa. And look, I've had American Express card since 1989. They're expensive as hell, but I enjoy the products they create. I like the customer experience. They've got great online tools, et cetera. But if I have the opportunity to put a few more bucks in the local merchant in their pocket instead of in American Express's, well, I'm going to make that choice. The third thing I think is also kind of cool. What I really love is where I see the opportunity to do the right thing presented to me by the business owner. Just yesterday, I read about this new mobile app. It's a delivery service called Black and Mobile. It's like Postmates or Uber Eats, but they're supporting Black-owned restaurants. So if you want to go on and order from a Black-owned restaurant, it's a great, easy way for you to do that. I also listened to an episode of How I Built This with Guy Raz, who, by the way, will be on this show in August. Excited about that. He was interviewing the founder of Impossible Beef, I think is the name. It's one of the vegetarian beef products. And he was talking about the fact that, hey, if you want to give consumers the opportunity to to do the right thing, you've got to give them a good product. You can't just be like, you can't guilt them into trying to do the right thing. And I think that's missing in some businesses like these buy one, give one services, you know, like Tom's shoes and all that. It's like, why don't you just make a good shoe? instead of like a flip-flop with no arch support and a canvas backstitched on it, it just doesn't make sense to me. Like I've got some, I think they're Bonobo socks. Are they? Hang on a second. Some sock that's a buy one, give one. I can't remember the name of them. I'd only worn them like 10 times and I put my finger through the sock. Like it just ripped. And I'm like, why don't you just make a better product? Let people do the right thing, but you got to give them a good product too. Those are my thoughts and takeaways for the day. I'm very excited to tell you that next week we're going to have on comedian Kyle Kinane. He's been doing it a long time. He's got three Comedy Central specials. He's been on Conan and The Tonight Show and all kinds of stuff. And he's got a really interesting point of view on the way he's managed his spending and kept his lifestyle modest. It has allowed him tremendous creative freedom. And I didn't see that topic coming up in our conversation, but that's where it went. Anyway, next week on Crazy Money Comedian, Kyle Kinane, that's a lot of cuss sounds, and those are always good for comedians. Hey, folks, if you haven't subscribed, please click subscribe. You've listened this long, for goodness sake. And if you haven't given us a rating, we'd love for you to scroll down, throw us some stars, write something very insightful and thoughtful about how witty and intelligent and humble I am. I appreciate you listening. Mike Carano, make me sound smart.